What we're doing as a church family is we have been processing through a sermon series entitled, Sure Thing. Sure Thing. And this morning we're going to take a look at a sure thing in the kingdom of God, and it's this, humility. Humility. If you were to read in Scripture, you would find from front to finish that humility is something God speaks about. Now at the outset of this teaching, I know that some people sitting here are going, oh boy. But what I want to tell you is that humility is something that God calls us to. It's mission critical. So what we're going to do this morning is we are going to process through what the Bible says about it because if God calls me to it and it's a sure thing for Him, then I want to process through it so it's a sure thing for me. Now here's what I want to say at the outset. Oftentimes when we hear the word humility, it makes us think that we should not be good at what God's gifted us in. If you are good at business, do incredible at it. If you are an athlete, get out there and whoop them. If you are a person that loves music, become a phenom on your instrument. Whatever it is that you have a passion for, that you are gifted for, go out there and get it done with all of your heart because I believe when you use your giftedness for God, believe it or not, He views it as worship to Him. I do. I believe that when you take the giftings of God and you use them to the best of your ability, God looks down and He smiles and receives it as worship. So if you're smart, get great grades. If you are like me and you're not so smart, do great at sports. Figure out an area where you can do really well in, but use your passion and your gifting. Humility does not mean that I throw aside the giftings and the things that God has blessed me with. So what I want to do is we're going to look at humility biblically. We're going to look at what it is. Humility, or to be humble, in the Scriptures is taken from the Latin word that means low-flying, staying close to the ground or of the earth. That's what the word means, humility or humble. The best example of this biblically is found in Philippians 2, 6-7, where the Scripture says this, that Jesus, elevated in heaven, thought it not robbery to lower Himself, to release His grasp, on where God had him, and to release his grasp on that, and to lower himself, and to come to the earth in human form, God in the flesh. It's probably the most profound view of what humility looks like. Jesus up there, part of the Trinity, takes on human flesh. He takes on the stuff of earth, and he lowers himself, and he walks among humankind. It's the ultimate example of humility. But what we're going to do today is we're going to take a look at a parable that Jesus tells about humility, and we're going to find that it's going to strike us very close to home. 
So we're going to utilize the parable found in Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14. So if you had opened your smartphone, utilized the Bible you brought, or the ones that we provide, and turn with me to Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14. It's the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. So this is a parable that Jesus teaches in order to teach a culturally context, spiritual truth, so we can understand a greater thing. Because if Jesus just said, go be humble, it doesn't have the same impact. But if you tell a story or you tell a parable that people in that culture will easily connect to, then the spiritual truth is learned. And so that's what Jesus does. He tells the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Let's read it together. It says, To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like the other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. Now many Bible scholars believe that he was praying loud enough that the tax collector heard him. Welcome to worship. It says, but the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but he beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Jesus goes on to say, I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God, for all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Humility. It's a sure thing. In order to understand the parable, we have to get a little bit of the context. There's two actors in Jesus' parable. The first one is a Pharisee. Who's a Pharisee? Well, he's a religious leader who had memorized the first five books of the Bible. He had been to the most elite rabbinical schools, had been chosen as the best, and had been promoted to religious leadership. He's a Pharisee. Now, Pharisees were people that lived strictly by the 613 laws of the Older Testament. It began with 10 and grew to 613, and believe me, there were more rules than that. This guy believed that if you lived by every rule, God would bless you. His life is driven by rules. Not only that, Pharisees took it upon themselves to make sure that you and I, if we lived during that day and we were Jewish, that we also would live by every rule and every law. Why? They believed if all of Israel did this, then God would visit everyone. That God would not just be in the temple, but He would visit everyone in their homes as well. Now it starts off with kind of a good idea, but it gets very sideways. The reason is, 
is that what ended up happening is a lot of the Pharisees became arrogant. You can kind of see this in this guy, can't you? What's his prayer? Dear God, thank you, thank you that I am not like that guy. Judgmentalism. Legalism. Now, the other player, but I want you to notice that the Pharisee, it said, stood by himself. The other guy in the play or in the parable is a guy who is a tax collector. Truth of it is, he is, by all intents and purposes, a horrible person. He is a Jew who has gone to work for the Roman government and he is taking money from Jews and giving it to the Romans and he's skimming off the top. That's how it works. If anyone would protest against him, he would go to the nearest Roman soldier and say, this guy will not pay his taxes and the Roman soldier would kill the guy, his entire family, and burn his house down. So when the tax collector showed up, you paid your taxes. He is a tax collector. Notice that he stood apart. The Pharisee stands by himself. The tax collector stood apart. And in the middle is the congregation like this one. Now, in order to get the context a little more deeply, let me read for you what's actually happening in this moment. Here's what we're told. There was a daily service in the temple in Jerusalem on Mount Zion, which was the center of Jewish worship. There was a daily service in the temple, and it was when the atonement offerings were being made. An atonement offering is something that the priest would make for the people to bring reparations for all of their sins. And so what you had is you had this large congregation that would go into the temple. They would go twice a day. There was an atonement offering given at dawn and then three o'clock in the afternoon every day. And each service began outside of the sanctuary at the gray high altar with the sacrifice for the sins of Israel of a perfect lamb whose blood was sprinkled on the altar following a precise ritual. In the middle of the prayers, there would be the sound of silver trumpets, the clanging of cymbals, and the reading of a psalm, and the people would begin to worship God. Then the officiating priest would enter the outer part of the sanctuary where he would offer incense and he would trim the lamps. At that point... When the officiating priest then disappeared into the building, the worshipers in attendance could offer their private prayers. It tells us that many pious Jews who were not at the temple would offer their private prayers at that time of the day when they knew at dawn and at three o'clock in the afternoon that the offerings were being offered to God, the offering of atonement, and the incense of worship was being offered to God, they would pray their private prayers if they were not in Jerusalem. It also says that this particular service afforded the opportunity for what we do today in church. It's an opportunity for public worship, but also private prayer. 
So what you find in this context, in this parable, are two people that are standing apart. And what you see is the Pharisee's prayer is not a prayer at all. It's a judgment. But we find that the tax collector, who is considered the worst of sinners, worse than prostitutes in Jewish culture, he is the worst of sinners, we find that his prayer is this. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Now what you can't tell in English is this. The word for mercy is only used twice in the Newer Testament. There's a common word for mercy, which means that you don't get the punishment that should be yours. It's when my dad went to whoop me as a boy. And I'd say, Daddy, have what? Mercy on me. That's not the word he uses. The word he uses is a rare term. It's translated mercy, but it means to make an atonement. Make an atonement. His prayer is this, God, please, Make this atonement sacrifice that the high priest is doing with the blood of the Lamb. God, please let that sacrifice be mine. Because I am a sinner. Isn't that amazing? This guy prays a prayer saying, God, I'm a sinner. Please apply the sacrifice of the high priest to me. And he is standing, it says, apart from the others. What a difference. In the midst of the sacrifice, the Pharisee is bearing down judgment. And the tax collector, in Jesus' parable, is saying, God, please make that atonement apply to me. I'm a sinner. Have mercy on me, a sinner. I am well aware that the word sinner is very unpopular. I know it is. But here's what I want you to understand about the word sinner. The word sinner is a theological designation. It is not a moralistic judgment. It is not a word that places humans somewhere along a continuum ranging from angel angel to ape, assessing them as relatively good or bad. What the word sinner does is it designates humans in relation to God and sees them as separated from God. Sinner means something is awry between a human being, a person, and God. A sinner can be a person that may be wicked, unhappy, and anxious, and poor. But a sinner may also be virtuous, happy, and affluent. Those items are not part of the judgment that announces you as a sinner. Sinner means that you have done something that has deviated from the will of God. That's what makes you a sinner. 
And oftentimes in our culture, when someone uses the word sinner, but they'll say, oh, but he's a nice guy. She's such a nice person. That's not what's being talked about. The word sinner is a biblical theological designation that means we are separated from God because I've done something that's out of God's will. Let me ask you a question. Who sitting here has ever sinned? Oh, come on now. Who here has ever sinned? Right there we go. Are you alive and breathing? You've sinned. If you think you haven't, ask your spouse. They'll help you. They'll name it. They'll list them. They'll tell it. The truth of it is, is that you are a sinner. Now you might say to yourself, but I haven't done the big ones. You might say, you know, all I did, huh, since the start of school, maybe you're at, on grounds at UVA. All you've done is stolen five bucks from a dorm mate down the hall. You just snuck five bucks. That's all. That's all. You weren't out doing anything real crazy. You just, eh, just five bucks. And, you know, come to think of it, you might pay it back or, you know, but that, that's, that's all you've done. You know what God calls you? A sinner. You done sinned. Makes you a sinner. I've sinned. I'm a sinner. And you know what's incredible? Is there's a verse in Romans by the Apostle Paul who himself was a Pharisee. And here's what he writes. Romans 3.23 For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You can turn to the person next to you and say, you are a sinner. The Bible says so. Are you part of all? If you're part of all, you've sinned and you've fallen short of the glory of God. But here's what I'll tell you. Many of us do what the Pharisee did. Here's what we do. We do it naturally. Our state of being a sinner is judged against a comparison of other people. It's about me judging myself against someone else. What I'll end up doing is saying, well, you know, I might have stole five bucks from the dorm room down the hall, but I've never killed anyone. You know, I've, I haven't done, you know, the big murder one. I know what the commandments are. I know that stealing's one of the ten, but come on, go easy. It's only five bucks, and I never killed anyone. I'm not Joseph Stalin or Adolf Hitler, have you ever heard people say that before? I mean, those guys are the sinners. Idi Amin, he's a sinner. They're the sinners. They're the big ones. But God says, all of us, through Paul, all of us have sinned and fallen short, not of a comparison to other people. We have fallen short of God's glory. The standard is the glory of God. Being a sinner isn't me comparing myself to someone else. My being a sinner is compared to the glory of God. Notice what the Pharisee does. He believes that he is right with God based on his own self-righteousness. 
He lists a couple things. God, I tithe. God, I do this. And oh, by the way, God, in case you didn't know, look at the tax collector. I'm better than him. Compared to him, I'm righteous. He's the sinner. I'm righteous. The problem is, that's not what being a sinner is about. It's not me comparing myself to other people. It's about the glory of God and the standard God sets. Five bucks makes you a sinner. The next thing is, we not only naturally compare ourselves to other people, but we also like to rank sins. Now there's a top ten in the Bible. We like to rank them. But here's an incredible statement that is written by James, the brother of Jesus, in James chapter 2, verse 10. Here's what he writes. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking it all. What? You mean that if I steal five bucks from the dorm room next to me, that I'm also guilty of murder? That's what James says. When you break one, you're guilty of all of them. Every last one. Why? You're a sinner. You're guilty of them all. And you may say, but I've never killed anyone. And Jesus shows up, and as He is teaching about life, He says, if you've ever hated, ever hated someone, you can stand in judgment for murder. My goodness. And so, what ends up happening is murder is a capital punishment. And in light of this, or in a different way to look at it, you've got this guy, and here he is arrested. He's been tried and found guilty, and the executioner's hood is just being slipped over his head. And the executioner says to him, do you have any final words? Anything you need to say? And the guy says, wow, I never knew stealing five bucks from the dorm room was so serious. Because you're guilty of them all. You're guilty of using the Lord's name in vain. You're guilty of murder. You're guilty of all, according to James. And I think to myself, this is heavy. This isn't easy. This is heavy. Because I want to rank the sins. I want to rank them. James says, oh no. When you break one, you break them all. You're guilty of them all. You know, conversely, it's pretty fascinating because this isn't something just on the negative, but it's also on the positive. There's a teacher of the law that comes up to Jesus and says to him, Jesus, you know these 613 laws and all the auxiliary laws that we live by? Which is the most important one? And at the end of the book of Matthew, here's what Jesus says. He replies, love the Lord your God all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And then he says this. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. You see, Jesus saw all the commandments funneling down. And it funnels down to relationship. Love God, love people. You fulfill all the law. And James takes the converse of that. If you break one, you break them all. Guilty. 
Thomas de Quincey wrote somewhat of a poem, and I want you to listen to it. He wrote this. If once a man indulges himself in murder, very soon he comes to think little of robbing. And from robbing, he comes next to drinking, and then eventually Sabbath-breaking, and from that to incivility and procrastination. Once begun on this downward path, you never know where you are to stop. Many a man has dated his ruin from some murder or other perhaps he thought little of at the time. Started with murder, went down to the other ones. Ranking sin doesn't seem to work biblically. And what we also might try to do, and I've done it myself, we look at the tax collector. We get why the Pharisee's in trouble because honestly he's judgmental, he's stiff, he's stiff-necked, he's not loving, he's cruel, he's judgmental. It's what a lot of people assume Christians are like. A lot of people. We get why he might be said of Jesus that he goes home not justified, but we look at the tax collector and here's what we want to think. We want to go, well, if you hang out with Joe the tax collector, you know what you'll find? He's a pretty nice guy. You hang out with him, likes to fish, likes to do some pretty cool things, good guy, likable guy. And what we look for is something in him that we believe is redeemable. And we look at it that way and we go, there's some characteristic in him that's likable. I like it, so God likes it. Therefore, God will forgive. Not how it works. We are labeled as a sinner because we've sinned. That's why. And then, there's this other passage of Scripture. And the Scripture essentially says this in James chapter 4, verse 6. God opposes the proud, but shows favor, which means grace, to the humble. God opposes the proud, but shows favor, which means grace. God shows grace to the humble. How many of you got up this morning and you thought to yourself, here's my goal for today. I hope God opposes me. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to get up, I'm going to strap on my shoes for the day, and by golly, I'm hoping God opposes me. You want that? Be proud. Now, when I think about this text, where it says in James 4, 6, God opposes the proud but shows favor or grace to the humble, I think about opposition. I think about when two opponents oppose each other. When they are opposite each other. And I remember, and all of you know that I'm a huge wrestling fan, that I go to the wrestling meets at UVA. I love wrestling. I wrestled when I was a kid. I want to tell you a story that illustrates this for me about opposition. When you wrestle, at least several years ago when I wrestled, you would line up on the wrestling mat. And how it worked was the lightweight would be on the left and the heavyweights would go all the way up to the right. And so when you looked at the opposing team, you would look diagonally at the person that you were going to wrestle against. Talking here about opposition and opposing. 
So I remember I was doing relatively well. And what would happen is you would line up before the match would start. You would turn. You would look diagonally at that person. And I was the lightest guy on the team. I wrestled 101 pounds as a freshman in high school. I was skin and bones, more bones than skin, trust me. I was skin and bones. And I would look across the mat, and I remember we were wrestling this school, and I had done exceptionally well that year, and my coach um, leaned over, and what he'd always do, the coaches would give you a little pep talk, and they'd give you that smack, you know, go get them, Tiger. And when he said it to me, his tonality was different than normal. It was like, ah, go get him. And so I kind of run out into the middle, you know, and you go out and you're all excited and you put your hand out and you shake and all this. So I go booking out there and I'm like this, you know, and I was new to the school and I shake my, and I was new to the conference. I'd wrestled in Wisconsin. Now I was wrestling somewhere else. And I put my hand out. And when I put the hand out, the guy didn't stick out his hand. So I kind of stood up and he looked at me and he fell straight over onto his forehead. Bam! And then he spun around, he bridged, and did that karate judo flip, and he whipped himself up, and he looked right in my face, and he shook my hand. And then he ran, and he went back. He'd already won. The match was over. I was so dominated. It was unbelievable. And literally, after he did that, he ran back. And I'm thinking to myself, I went from, you got to win, stay undefeated, to was, don't get pinned. Whatever you do, just do not get pinned. So I go back, and everyone else does their thing, and I go back, and I look at my coach, and I say, who is he? And my coach goes, ah, he's, he's just the state champ. That's all, <laughs> That's all he is. You, you know, you got this. And every, you, you know, when you know, when you know you're going to lose, people back away. You know, the whole rest of the team's backing away. Of course, I'm first, right? So the lightweights go first. And I go out there, and there's wrestling terminology, and it's called this, looking at the lights. If you're looking at the lights, what does that mean? You're on your back and you're looking straight up. You don't want to look at the lights when you're wrestling. You want someone else to look at the lights. So I go out there and what I determined was just don't get pinned. Now look, the honest truth is I have no clue what the final score was. But here's a mental picture of what I want you to picture. Have you ever seen a house cat in the front yard with a field mouse? The cat gets the mouse, carries it right to the middle of the yard, and then just smacks it around. <laughs> and the mouse thinks it's going to get away, so it takes off running, and the cat just kind of lays there and waits, and as soon as the mouse is getting, eh, runs over, grabs it, brings it back to the mill, throws it up the air, smacks it out of the air, bites it a few times, leaves it there, backs up. Poor little mouse is just huffing and puffing and just struggling to live. Starts to crawl and the mouse does this repair. That's a vision of this wrestling match. That's exactly <laughs> what it was like. Just pulled me in the middle, tortured me, wrapped me up like a pretzel, beat on me, I'm exhausted. I'm just praying for the final buzzer. And all I know is I didn't get pinned. It's all I know. It's all I know. You know what? The prayer that I had was I would never wrestle that kid again. That was my prayer. And the good news was he was in the conference, and the way the seating worked, I didn't have to wrestle him because the guy that I lost who got pummeled like a cat with a mouse by that guy, and so then I was out of the tournament. Done. Here's what I learned. Who opposes you matters. Big time. Matters. Huge. 
Well, what I'm going to tell you is in the match of life, God says, I oppose the proud. I oppose them. And how would you like to start off in the game of life? And the announcement in the tournament is this, Pete Hartwig, blah, 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 a record. He's going to come out 101 pounds and you run out onto the mat. And his opponent in the game of life is God. <laughs> there is a sure thing in Scripture. And it's this, humility is what God calls us to. That text of Scripture says this, God opposes the proud, but shows favor. He gives grace to the humble. It's what He does. And what I learned from the parable of Jesus is this, that a sinner went into the presence of God and knew he had no business being there. He knew his sin. His sin was like a hound that hunted him day and night. Day and night. But when he gets into God's presence, he says, God, have mercy on me. God, please let this atonement, let this sacrifice be applied to my life because I'm a sinner. If you want to know Practically, where humility starts before God, it's when I admit that I am a sinner. I don't blame it on anyone else. I don't lay the blame at their door. But I own it for me. 1 John chapter 2, verse 2 says this. Jesus is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. You know what that means? You don't have to go to Jerusalem. Because the temple was destroyed in 70 A.D. And there's been no sacrifice for sins since the destruction of the temple. But 1 John 2.2 tells us this. That Jesus is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. Humility is a sure thing in the kingdom of God. When we come out, we confess that I'm a sinner. The Bible says that God shows favor. He gives grace to the humble. And humility for, before God begins here and it ends here. I'm a sinner, saved by grace. Would you with me stand into God's presence? As you stand with me, we're going to conclude our service by taking just a moment to close our eyes. Romans, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. It's a theological designation. It means that I've sinned. And in this moment, for some of us, possibly for the very first time, you're going to step before God the same way the tax collector does.
You're going to step into His presence and you'll pray the same prayer. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. God, let the atonement of Jesus, let the sacrifice of Jesus be applied to me. Forgive me. Cleanse me. We're going to be singing the worship song, Cornerstone. It's a song that speaks of what Jesus has done for us. When your heart and your soul is at peace between you and God, please join in with the worship team as they lead us in Cornerstone. Some who were confident in their own righteousness, their own good deeds, to make them right with God. 
Jesus taught them this parable. At the end, the one who left justified prayed this prayer. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus ends by saying this, For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Let's pray. God, thank you for your scriptures. Thank you for the clarity that we find in them, even though sometimes it's difficult to hear. God, I pray for us that we would be a people that understand this truth. That humility begins with confessing that I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. Jesus, now I pray for those of us that might be wrestling with who you are. That we know that we need you, but we're not sure, we're uncertain. I pray that by your presence right now, that you would touch every heart. And that maybe for the very first time, there would be a dawning prayer. Where someone would say, Jesus, Jesus, forgive me. I'm a sinner. Jesus, I thought being right with God was because of all the good that I've done. But now I understand. It's humbling myself, owning my own sin, and asking You as my atonement that You would cleanse me and put me in right relationship with my Heavenly Father. God, do that miracle in our hearts. I pray that that miracle would be sustained from this moment until we live with you forever and ever. Amen. To conclude our service, we have a prayer team that will be coming forward to pray with you. If you have personal needs, maybe you want to pray with someone about the message that you've just heard, we invite you to come forward with the prayer team, physical needs, relational, whatever it might be. We invite you to come down to be prayed with and be prayed for. I also want to ask that if you're able to stay after and help us with teardown, that would be awesome. Again, exit the auditorium, go diagonally to your right. You can go in the black draped off area and there you'll find people that will lead you to the zones where we need help. If you would like to stay in worship, we invite you to do that. If you would like to stay and pray, we invite you to do that as well. And now may the Lord bless you. May the Lord keep you. May He cause His face to shine upon you. And may He give us peace. Let's worship together. When He shall come with trumpet sound Oh, may I then in Him be Dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. Christ alone, cornerstone, weak, made strong, and the Savior's love. 